Victorian Britain's celebrity preacher, the Irish-born Monsignor Thomas John Capel, hid a dark secret because behind his handsome looks, his uh, aristocratic friends and close ties to a couple of popes, he was a sexual predator and an exposure of vulnerable women. His uh, lustful encounters, his heavy drinking and his wild spending ended in humiliation, disgrace and suspension by Rome. Now, a book has been written about Monsignor Thomas John Capel called The Monsignor, and it's been written by former RTE newsreader Una O'Hagan and her late husband, Colin Keane, and I'm delighted to say that uh, Una's with me in studio. Good morning to you, Una. Good morning, Fran. And you're very welcome. And first of all, condolences to you on the loss of Colin. We always mm-hmm. looked forward hugely to both of you coming here yeah, about yeah. your books. And we stuff. would love it because we, yeah. we live, I still live in Ring and it was a lovely drive up and yeah. we'd always be chatting always look forward talking to you because first of all you you always read the books mm. and always gave an interesting interview. Mind you one that you had to be on your toes for because <laughs> <laughs> you never knew what interesting detail you'd come up with but well, yeah. It's yeah. A, well it's we're, we're delighted you both enjoyed your, your trips here as well. A year and a half I think of the yeah, point, January yeah. last yeah. year. Uh, I mean, it feels like yesterday, but um, I suppose it's something you have to get used to. But it's kind of the little things that you that come back. Uh, like there's a particular ad that Colm always thought was, you know, funny. And whenever it comes on the television, I kind of expect him to kind of come in from the kitchen going, oh, Yes. She's not walking that way again, is she? <laughs> it was the particular so it's thing. The little things like it's that. It's just yeah. the small little. And items. is the publication bittersweet then, Una? Because uh, I suppose it's the the it's, final work between is. you both. It yeah. is. Yeah, it is bittersweet. And it's every time I look at the cover, I laugh to myself because we had it prepared, and we had a, a particular cover which I never liked, and uh, I decided. I, I delayed a year in bringing this out, so I decided I'd get a new cover done. And, uh, like, Colm always liked to be in control of everything, so I don't think he would have approved of that. But when I... There were two colours to go for. One was this bright kind of orange-red colour, and I could practically hear him cheering over my shoulder, saying, yes, you did the right <laughs> thing, because he always loved bright colours. Yeah, it's interesting you would always question what his angle would be. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, he was yeah. very good at, uh, you know, I sound like some besotted, you know, wife or whatever, but he was terribly good at, you know, knowing what worked. Yes. Either in broadcast-wise, book-wise, visually, everything. He he had a good, uh, an excellent judgment. Yeah, he wore it very lightly, though, because yeah. I remember the first time I knew you were both coming here. I mean, I, I knew his backstory and his mm. huge experience in radio production. Mm. Oh, God almighty, you know, coming into local radio, what will he be like? But, I mean, he, he was so gracious. No, he loved and, local know, radio. Just, because local yeah. radio reaches in to areas that, you know, national broadcasters really don't get to. And Colin was all about that. He wanted to communicate to people. And he loved entertainment. If you're entertaining people, that was the best thing possible. He wasn't a po-faced producer at all. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, the book then, because what a remarkable story, Una. I mean, a remarkable man, even though extremely flawed and ruthless. And I was saying to you, possibly a psychopath. Is that pushing it too far? No, I don't think so. I mean, I'll give you a brief description of him. He was very handsome. He was very charismatic, incredibly intelligent. Um, And yet behind all that, he was manipulative, ruthless... And I really don't think he had a conscience because he he exploited people, both financially, sexually, every way, who were good, good people. 
honest people, people who really looked up to him, and yet he never saw that he had done any wrong. Incredible. The story began in Ardmore. In Ardmore, believe yeah. it or not. 1836, he was born to a... His father was John Capel. He was a member of the Coast Guard stationed in Ardmore. And his mother was Mary Fitzgerald from nearby Whiting Bay, the daughter of a farmer. They had been married there the previous two or three years. <clears throat> and they... Uh, eventually, they moved following... Uh, Capel's father's job as in the Coast Guard around the south coast of England. But, <clears throat> excuse me, from very early on, it was clear that Capel was an exceptional young boy. And through his own hard work and the help of a lot of people, he pulled himself up by his bootstraps, got a good education, uh, became vice principal of a teacher training college when he was only 20, which is incredible, and was ordained a priest when he was 20, 22, uh, when he was 22 years of age. And um, he, it was all down to his own absolute brilliance. But with that brilliance, there was a flaw. Mm. And was there some early signs? I mean, there was a breakdown, for example. Uh, now, you're the only person to actually... Um, highlight that. I think that's very interesting. When he was ordained, now he had been working very hard because he was learning to be a teacher and training for the priesthood and teaching all at the same time. But he had, yes, he had a complete mental and physical breakdown, was sent to the south of France uh, to recover and in fact that's where he took off. He started up his own kind of um, mission Yes. Uh, you know where he would sermonise uh, he, he ended up in a place called Poe which was uh, where very rich uh, English aristocrats came to you know pass the, the, the winter and uh, he was incredible not just at um, being a brilliant sermonizer, but he would convert an awful lot of them to Catholicism this brought him to the attention of the Pope who made him a Monsignor Yes and that was his great worth that, to, to the church he was the poster boy for yes. the church. If you consider, when he went back to England, he his boss was Cardinal Manning. Very nice man, very good, holy man, but very austere. Mm. Whereas Capel was the entire opposite. So he, he was the poster boy, yeah. Yes. The, the Being such a wonderful orator, and so, did that start? In, did he discover those skills in France? Or? No, he was very... Um, he honed them in mm, France, put yes. it that way. I mean, there's a description from an American journalist, a woman who's saying she's sitting there in the church, you know, with all the other, with the German princesses, with the other members of the aristocracy, and he's there and she's almost in tears, uh, you know, because of what he is saying. And he was very clever at... He was a great communicator. He would think up whatever... The topic was he would come up with a few kind of themes on it. He would write them down. He would then burn that piece of paper and then he would me he, he would do it from memory. But he also spoke in what was described as word pictures. And you know, as a broadcaster, you want to evoke an image in people's minds. That's the way you, you really make contact with people. Um, and that's what he learned. That's the skill that he honed in France. And the other skill, of course, was playing the room. There's a lovely description mm -hmm. of him sashaying through crowds. He was whispering in ears and he was dishing compliments and young women were, and the young, were the 
Young English women would blush <laughs> rosy red with delight. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that, because I can see that. That yeah. is so, so, so visual indeed. Mm. He did dispense with his Irishness, though, didn't he? He did. I mean, he, he, he never took really, on an English accent. He, he took on, oh, he was such a social climber. I'm yeah. sure you know people like that. But this guy... <laughs> And they're not very nice. But anyway, he um, he never mentioned his Irish roots uh, when he was in England. He never mentioned his, you know, poverty-stricken background. Um, and he... he when he he managed to um, convert the richest man in the world at the time, and for that he had to go to Oxford. Now he couldn't have spent more than a few months in Oxford, but like the following year, he was being spoken about as having the most pure Oxford accent. I mean, that oh, I don't know that turns my stomach. I've never liked people who forget where they're from. For sure, you tell me about that conversion that you alluded to there, because yeah. that was pivotal. Wasn't it was it, really? absolutely. Yeah. This is where his name was made. Mm. It was a guy called the Marquis of Butte and he had been you know he had been questioning uh, his religious beliefs at the time for a long time and Capel managed to swoop in. He did this a lot. Sometimes a lot of other priests or people would have done the work. Capel would swoop in and get the credit and uh, when the conversion of, um, of the Marquis of Butte was announced there was absolute outrage in the British press. And this was because there was an awful lot of hostility to the Catholic Church at the time. And it was seen as being a perversion to convert to Catholicism. And Butte was called the noble pervert. This didn't... I know it's a terrible phrase, but this didn't affect either of them. A few months later, Capel headed off on the uh, on Butte's... Um, magnificent yacht called the Ladybird and they travelled around the Mediterranean and met the Pope. Oh, it was absolutely amazing. He had a wonderful lifestyle. Tell me about the colleges and the schools Mm. because really his failure began, I suppose. It did. I think he fancied himself a businessman. He always had big ideas that would work in theory, but he never put in the work himself. He was usually off drinking at the very least and he set up a number of schools, the most important of which was a school for boys, which he wanted to be the Catholic Eton. But he didn't look after it. He left, the schools went to rack and ruin. Um, There were various uh, complaints about what the sixth formers were up to, which were extremely serious. And yet, despite this, he was made then the rector of the first Catholic university in Britain, which folded a few years later, because yet again, uh, Capel neglected it, ran it into the ground. And you would think that the Catholic Church would be getting the hint at this stage. But no, they kept on, they, they, mm. they kept him in position. But how did he, I mean, that home, that beautiful home that you described, Cedar that he had Villa, in Kensington, yeah. was it Kensington? Wasn't Kensington, it? yeah. yeah. Um, what, what, how did he get away? I mean, he had parties, he had, mm-hmm. I mean, and it was an ongoing sort of a event. Oh, his Sunday uh, afternoon parties were yeah. legendary. I mean, you could hear the music, if there was music, you could hear it all around the neighbourhood. Um, it was extraordinary. I mean, first of all, how he could afford it. Uh, was something yes, else. Yes, because works of art adorned oh, yeah, the walls. Now, the and... works of art that looked like they were real works of art were, were fakes. They were knockoffs. Right. When, right. when eventually he the went... The auction, yes. When, yeah, when he eventually yeah. went bankrupt for the equivalent of £3 million in today's money, uh, he didn't. they didn't get much, much right. back. Okay. But one of the interesting things on the list of, of items that had to be sold, because everything had to go, even his poor dog, Beppo, was put up for sale. But there were 
30 dozen bottles of wine put up for sale. That's 360 bottles. It's incredible, <laughs> isn't it? Um, tell me then about his downfall, and it really... I mean, there is a Tipperary connection here. There is very much yeah. so. Will you tell me about There's that? There's a young woman called Mary Sturton, and she was absolutely pivotal to his downfall. She was 23 when she met him. She came from, he was about 30, he was going on 39. She came from a, actually it was a Tipperary family. Her, her mother was from Tipperary, from a Bloomfield, Bloomfield House. And her name was Catherine Scully. Um, now she had married, she had made a very good marriage and they lived on the Isle of Wight. Um, her husband was a very well-respected man. Unfortunately, Mary didn't get on with her mother at all. Her mother was extremely religious. And Mary ended up in, oh, she ended up in a mess. She'd had a brief affair that she hadn't really wanted but had been pursued by this guy. Anyway, ended up in isolation in Kensington, which is where Capel's base was. And it was her aunt, Mary Leahy, also from Tipperary, who introduced her to the Monsignor, who thought, you know, Mary could do, the, the, her niece could do with a bit of spiritual guidance. Right, but and he took advantage. He did. This he, is where know. all her misery began, yes. according to Mary. He would call to her constantly. He would stay there an hour, an hour and a half. Um, and she was only about two minutes away from Cedar Villa. And th she said this uh, in her lodgings, this is where all um, these acts of criminal intimacy uh, took place. And she, despite her isolation, despite her youth, she complained to Cardinal Manning. She actually went and spoke to him. And then, again... This wasn't the first complaint, but he did nothing about it, which reinforced Capel's behaviour, actually. And it was only about three or four years later, during which time Mary kept writing to her, to, to Manning, um, that Manning eventually took, took some action. But there are two interesting... There's a lovely photograph of her in the book. I mean, she is such... She looks so sad yeah. in yeah. it. She really had a tough life. But when we were in the um, archives in London, we're, all, the, all the documents were kept in this, uh, these boxes. And we reached into the bottom of the box and there was an envelope. We opened the envelope and out came this little photograph and a lock of Mary's hair oh wrapped in blue ribbon. And she had that kind of cherry cherry gold blonde hair and it was like it had been cut yesterday so I, I really feel a kind of close connection with her because of that He's, um, I mean he was prepared as well to throw his many lovers under the bus to ma maintain his position and when he came mm -hmm. before the the, the, the cardinal and everything, I mean he, he, he lies, totally. fabrication yeah, nothing yeah, was a problem no shame. He None. had no shame and of course he attacked uh, the women yeah. uh, who who he had had affairs with, you know, they were mad, um, they were drunks, yeah. they took drugs, they were immoral. Um, one of them was a convert, so she couldn't be believed. Another was a divorcee, so definitely you couldn't believe a word she said. There was only one young woman who I really, really liked, yes. which is Lucy Stevens, who was the youngest of them all, only about twenty twenty one, really good looking. Uh, woman whom Capel had tried it on with, mm. oh, de determined as ever, but never made any progress. And she actually turned up, he was conducting his own defence because he was so brazen. Yes. So she had to face him and his questioning 
not a bother on her. She wasn't frightened of him, but he was frightened of her. And he had very good reason to be as well. He was a drunkard, Una, of unbelievable sort of magnitude. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, the stories that go around... In a way, one of the best and the funniest stories is when he was actually in America which I love. He was in New York and he was invited to be a guest of honour at the uh, banquet, uh, gala banquet for the New York police inspectors and superintendents. So all the great and good were there, about 200 um, guests thereabouts. They drank 600 bottles of wine between them. Good night was had by all, particularly Capo, because an eyewitness at the event, wrote to Cardinal McCluskey of New York and said he had never seen anybody so drunk in his life, that Capel was absolutely paralysed with the drink. So Capel realised he had to apologise for his behaviour and he blamed it all on the smoke. He said the smoke had always had an effect on him, made him dizzy, couldn't remember what he had, uh, what he was going to say. And uh, I don't think the boys in New York in the hierarchy in the Catholic incredible. Church were impressed. I, I, I have to mention the pious ladies before oh, we, yeah. we speak about America because yeah. they, he surrounded himself with this group of women who were so loyal to him. They were utterly loyal yeah. to him in every way. Uh, they were known in Kensington as the pious ladies. Mm. You know, Cardinal Mann referred to them as the pious ladies. They supported him in everything he did. So they uh, they did his correspondence for him. Uh, when the schools began to fall apart and there were very few teachers, they stood in. They looked after the students, made food for them. They copied out pamphlets, anything and everything that he wanted done to be able to make his life run smoothly, they did. And also financially, they contributed, whether they wanted to mm. or not. And then he took advantage. He took some total, of that oh, yes. turned against him as well. Mm-hmm. By the way, we're, we're skirting through the woods an awful lot more stories and, and uh, detail in there as well. He, had, I mean, the church literally moved him on then because, they did. you know, yeah. I mean, he yeah. was disgraced. He was, but when he appeared in America, it was like a, re- a rebirth, wasn't it? It, it was, but I mean, he had no, if you can think of the person, like I look back in my working career and I th- think of people who would have got away with stuff and mm. you'd stand back and you go, how did they do that? Yes, yeah. well, Cable was the same. You know, Cable was found guilty, as you say, in... Uh, but he he wasn't found guilty. He was found not guilty, but not innocent. Yes, yeah. So that gave him a, a little bit of leeway. But I don't think that would have stopped him. No, he arrived in America. He yeah. organised a huge... Like, he wasn't allowed act, really, as a priest. But that didn't stop him. He had to make his, his money, his way financially. So he just organised a huge series mm. of lectures from... Uh, from the East Coast to the West Coast. But it was like a rock and roll tour, wasn't it? It was. There was a great description of one particular event in an enormous uh, auditorium in which the journalist who was there um, described how all the women, and like there were hundreds of women, had their opera glasses trained on the Monsignor the entire time. You know, he had it. Yes. Whatever else you say The original father trendy, I suppose, (laughs) in in some sort of a way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was incredible, though, because if you consider what, you know, we can loosely describe as a liberal lifestyle, Luna, the sermons were very conservative. Mm-hmm. And I think that might have been part of his downfall then, in particularly in the West Coast of uh, Absolutely. Like, yeah. for example, in California, well, there was a fair amount of hostility to him in America because 
they, they did, they kind of, well, who does he think mm, he is mm. coming here? And he kind of played into that, which he shouldn't have. But yeah, in California, one of the topics, um, one of his favourite lectures was the rights of women. Now, don't forget, California had a huge women's rights movement that was extra. I mean, it was long before the vote was ever given or thought of or whatever. They were really advanced in in California, and uh, Californian women were very outspoken. But yeah, like you know, the rights of women, according to him, they didn't have any. That didn't go down well. I, I can well imagine that indeed. Um, can you briefly tell me about how he how it ended up for him? Because again, he ended up with patronage, I suppose. He did the, the, on, on until the the day he died. Well, there's one story that I, I'm, I'm always telling because I just think it's so funny. There's a woman called Alice Bowler, very wealthy in Cincinnati, falls under his spell, gives him a thousand dollar check for the Pope's charity. By the way, Peter's Pence. In those days. And in America in particular, the cheque, when you issued it, would come back from wherever it was cashed. And she discovered that it had been cashed in Tiffany's, the jewellers in New York. And then she decides, oh, well, I'll find out what exactly the Monsignor spent the money on. And it was a diamond bracelet. So, you know, he, he just, he continued his... Yeah, yeah. Exploits uh, all the way across America. But it all began to fall apart. After about three years, there was just too much scandal. But luckily for the Monsignor, he fell on his feet. He met up with a, a woman that he had known before he'd met in Rome. Uh, she was a wealthy divorcee. He bumped into her on the street. He I bumped think, into yeah. her on the street yeah. after coming out of the most expensive hotel <laughs> in San Francisco. Incredible. I mean, he just never slummed it. Yeah. He just yeah. he never did. He had no he had no idea of how the other half lived, uh, whether he could pay for it or not. And he ended up living with her for twenty five years, the last twenty five years yes. of his life on her ranch. If we, I, I, I'm almost ashamed to say, I kind of felt a little bit sorry for him when you described. You know how he turned out in terms of his looks were all gone because oh, yeah. he's drinking. And I know. He, you I know. know. It, 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 so did I. I'm glad you said that yeah. because I felt a bit guilty. I mean, he was described as living the life of a disappointed man. Yes. He was once seen as you know being dressed up in kind of cowboy gear. He would occasionally be seen in a local Catholic church where he'd be doing the stations. You know, it was sad. Uh, he must have looked back on his life, and I'd say he was probably wondering where he went wrong. <laughs> I'd say he still couldn't figure it out. That's interesting. Was there, or do you know, was there any sense of remorse, for example? Did he? No. No, there was never that. Not in anything that we came across. He was always, he was up, he was a hundred out of a hundred when he was defending himself. Even in California, when there were bishops there giving out about him, he was still outraged that he his behaviour could ever be questioned. Right, and any sense Even of, though he knew he had done all this. It's incredible, <laughs> isn't it? And any sense of a faith, for example, you know? Not really. Not really. No, no. no. I, I think... No. Yeah. And yet, even though he learned his faith from his mother, uh, his mother seemed to have been a very good, very, you know, strong-minded, good Irish Catholic, put it that way. Yes. And it was uh, he said that he inherited his zeal and his enthusiasm for her. But no, he had a very shallow understanding 
of religion and theology, which was remarked upon in America in particular because they take their religion very seriously there. Yes. A little yeah. bit of pomp and ceremony to his, his funeral, though. Oh, I love that, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, the, the Catholic Church was very lucky because he happened to die in the Archbishop's house. I mean, it would have been very embarrassing if he died elsewhere. But uh, the bishop, who was from Ireland, uh, gave him, you know, the full trappings due to a Monsignor. And um, he was even buried, I love this detail, in a purple coffin. Yes, I know. And the other thing, from beyond the grave, when the news ended up in Kensington, in London, it was announced that Monsignor Capel the prelate in charge of the Catholic Church of Northern California had died. It was a lie. <laughs> you know, I mean, he was still spinning the information, everything to do with him from beyond the grave. This he he was amazing. incorrigible. Why would I, uh, would I not have heard of him, Una? A Why? very good reason. It was kept yeah. secret was by it? the Catholic yeah. Church, absolutely, particularly in Westminster. And how, do, how did you both hear, hear about him? <laughs> We uh, were researching, believe it or not, our book on Lourdes. And Monsignor Capel actually met St. Bernadette when he was in Poe. And he was so arrogant. Like, Bernadette was a lovely young girl, a peasant girl. She spoke the local dialect. Her French wasn't terribly good. But Capel made a point of criticising her French. And he was so arrogant. But that's how we came across him. And then we did a little bit of research and kept seeing, you know, oh, his mysterious fall from grace and, you know, a bit of women were kind of mentioned. And then his... Um, his uh, bankruptcy, and we thought there's got to be a story here, and there was, you know. And what a story it was indeed. Uh, could I finally mention it? Because there's a Coco Chanel, I think, as well, which I love. Isn't it know? incredible? Yeah, yeah. If you know anything, like I love Coco Chanel, yeah. I love, I, I've never bought anything of her, I couldn't afford it, but I love her story. Yeah. And there was a man who was very important in her life, her, her, the love of her life, who was called Boy Capel. And that was the Monsignor's nephew. And he was the man who set her up in business, gave her the money to start her business. And he also inspired her uh, with his, you know, those masculine kind of clothes that she came up with, the use of tweeds yes. and all that kind of yeah. material. There's a beautiful photograph, if you look it up on the internet, of a boy Capel leaning on a mantelpiece. And he just, the jacket is just to die style. for. Style. style but... Um, typical of the Capels, if we can, you know, generalise like that, he went and married the daughter of a lord because he was a social climber. He, uh, there was no way he was going to marry, you know, poor little Coco Chanel. And he, they continued their affair until he died in an accident. But if you go to Coco Chanel's apartment, which is kept as is in Paris, there on the mantelpiece is a bust of the Monsignor, yes. which he had in his Cedar Villa house Incredible. in Kensington. Incredible altogether. The book is just wonderful. I would highly recommend it, Una. It's a beautiful read. I, I couldn't put it down. It's in all, all of the usual Absolutely, stores, guess, yeah, yeah, yeah. And believe it or not, I was in Eason in the showgrounds and it's there. Excellent. I was doing that real author thing of Were looking you? around. Have they got it? Have they got it? <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember the ad on telly? Uh, I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But sure, why wouldn't they have it? It's a marvellous read. It's mm. called The Monsignor and uh, it's in all good bookstores. You can buy it online, I presume, yeah. as well. Una, lovely to see you again. And, and thank, you again. Thank you very Thanks, much, Brian. indeed.